and gentlemen, the beat goes on. KHJ Los Angeles. 331 in Los Angeles. This is the real Dobbs Steve. I know that I stand, and you're saying it. Welcome to the Director's Club Bonus with Brad and Al. We are uh, we put up these bonus episodes when we ha- come across a film that uh, was a, from a previously talked about director, and we want to take a look at the film. It's if it, it, there's a lot of things of interest in the film and how it relates to the work of Quentin Tarantino, because we are talking uh, about Once Upon a Time dot 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 in Hollywood. Howdy, I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And joining us, we're we're pleased to have the original podcasters, the OPs of the Directors Club, uh, Jim Lechkowski, the uh, Uber uh, runner of the Now Playing Network, and Patrick Rapol from Tra- Tracks of the Dams et al. Welcome, right. guys. Yeah, we're here. Can you believe it, guys? I finally made it. Yeah. I'm on the big time. This is the first this time is... the four of us have uh, done one of these together. I know. So A lot of people thought that you were just me in disguise, but now we they can <laughs> See, it's it's great to see Brad like talk when Patrick's drinking water. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, exactly. We're doing we're doing our ventriloquist act. I just hope the space time continuum doesn't collapse or something, or it's like uh, Southland. Oh, I'm not touching anybody. Trying, yeah. As long as we don't touch each other, we should be fine. Okay, don't good, cross good. the stream. No, yeah. well, maybe maybe a little later. Yeah. So, Jim, you were you were actually mentioning before we we're recording that that uh, one of the earliest uh, um, podcast efforts that you put together was related to Quentin Tarantino and indeed, a Tarantino indeed. film. Indeed, uh, yeah. Um, after Patrick and I saw Inglorious Bastards for the first time, I said, why don't we go back to your place? And, oh, wait, that sounds wrong. And then we crossed the streams. Yeah, why don't we get out some mics and actually like, well, probably just one mic or even, you know, like a really basic micro cassette recorder or something. <laughs> But uh, yeah, we just reviewed *Inglorious Bastards*, like you know, without like just like right at right after the movie mm-hmm. it had ended, and just give our, gave our initial impressions. Do you remember what those impressions were? Like a lot of Tarantino movies, I I go, you know, I need to see that again. Yeah, and I yeah. think I didn't like it very much. Yeah. I like it more now than I did. When I, I do first too. Thought, yeah. I really like it a lot now. So, um, but yeah, and. Uh, up until now, we've had a tradition of trying to see every Tarantino movie and talking about it in some capacity. Mm-hmm. And that's basically why I was like, well, we need to do a bonus episode mm-hmm. on, yes. on this particular film. Because the moment I walked out, I was like, I need to talk. I, mm. I, I need to talk. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I found that for every single Tarantino film, just goes and rewards like exploration on it. I, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Same with Paul Thomas Anderson or the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm, it's like you mm-hmm. see it once and you, you have a, that initial impression of it and then you have to go back. And, and yes. rethink it and see what uh, what other treasures it holds in store. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and there's so many interesting details on on these films that even when you have films that people are argue, arguably think as are misfire, he still puts in so many things that are um, uh, that have not been presented in a, in a, the way that he shows them that mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm just of the mind that like, let him make midnight movies, let him make, let, uh, uh let him make, um, uh, uh, quick indie hits. Just keep, 
Tarantino making films. Few directors are as enthralled with the process of filmmaking, are as in love with film. And to see a director who is both what I would consider a, a master at, at his craft, but also never forgets to be a fan, oh, yeah. there is adrenaline that comes with that. Yeah, I think it was, Patrick said once, it might have been on the De Palma episode, that uh, Brian De Palma loves movies, and he always shows it in his movies. However, he's not the best storyteller, and he's not the best at you know, coming up with uh, memorable characters, whereas Tarantino does. He does care about storytelling, and he does care about his characters. And specifically on the storytelling front, I think for me the reason why it's always so electric the first time you see a Tarantino movie is because the trailers will pitch one thing, and it's almost never just that. There's always something else going on. Like, you saw the trailers for Inglorious Bastards, and you're like, all right, Tarantino does the Dirty Dozen. Fucking A. And that movie is Mm -hmm. so wildly different from that. Mm -hmm. Um, And despite also delivering on the thing you would want from Tarantino doing the Dirty Dozen, the actual story structure of it and the shape of it he's more interested in actually telling a story as opposed to just delivering a formulaic sort of vehicle that is that might meet your expectations so the first time you see a movie you're like i have no idea what to expect right now i know the setting i know vaguely the characters but like i have no idea where this is going to go and that's always really exciting I really like the setting of the film, which we'll get into now into what the film is quote-unquote about, or the, the, the overarching th- thing, uh, theme of this film is, or is the, it is a look at L.A. in this time period sure. through, the le- through the lens of mostly three characters, a, a, an actor who has had some se- success on TV, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, Rick Dalton, uh, and his uh, and his friendship with his uh, stuntman uh, friend, played by uh, Brad Pitt, Cliff Booth, and as it's as they go through uh, stages of of getting getting certain gigs and having possibilities of performing in spaghetti westerns, the the at that point defo- at that point very ill reputed <laughs> film genre, <laughs> but it's interpersed with among 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 others the. Uh, 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 trips by one Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie, and the film cuts across mostly these three people as as both fictionalized versions of Hollywood figures and the versions of the Hollywood figures themselves, such as Steve McQueen and Jay Sebring, make their appearance. The first thing that struck me is how much of a culmination this film is of so many of Tarantino's obsessions and, oh, and sure. the first one of those that really I think is that this film just does to the nth degree is period detail and he's always been into this detail but my god if if I could recreate my childhood with the meticulousness that Quentin Tarantino recreates the environment of his childhood, that that would be something to see. And it ends up being a film that's partially about nostalgia, maybe a lot about oh, yeah, nostalgia. Yeah. But it, it's, for me, and I think for all of us in this room, uh, it's a nostalgia for a time that we weren't actually there to witness, yet still, I think that comes through. Interesting, almost like Tarantino does Wes Anderson. <laughs> yeah, or Richard Linklater, maybe yeah. a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it is. Uh, I, I'm I'm genuinely surprised 
because I pretty much love all of Tarantino's movies, and this one, I don't know why I didn't connect with it in the ways that I have before. I mean, I found it to be kind of meandering, but also it, it lacked an energy to it, and the the dialogue didn't crackle in the way that I I recall with some because like people were were saying this is oh this is more like a hangout movie like Jackie Brown and I was like oh great that's my probably my favorite still to this day mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it didn't it, it just didn't I mean I, it is like a day in the life of all these three characters and they're going about their day and they're doing all their individual things but for the most part uh, outside of some moments there are definite moments I loved. The, the whole thing together didn't culminate in a satisfying way. And I don't know if that's kind of by design <laughs> to a degree because it feels really episodic. Mm-hmm. I, I know he's also capturing a time when gruff white male heroes were considered the champions of the film universe. But maybe I just didn't see the point in spending time with these people in the same way that I have with all of his other work. And uh, I mean, I, w- I will admit that most of his other work does have flaws, but I always walk out feeling pretty good about the experience and the conversations, um, you know, that I have with people about his films are always interesting. Well, it's the later Quentin Tarantino movies that everything is always driving towards an inevitable moment. Yeah. The, you know, the inglorious bastards have their mission and you know that they're, they're going to confront, uh, you know, Hitler in some way or another. And like, will it go well? Will it go poorly? We don't know. But like, they are driving themselves to that moment. Django Unchained, he has to save his wife, you know, hateful eight. uh, You know that everything is going to end in a bloodbath. And it's just, you know, that everyone is sort of trying to figure each other out and work their way to that. This movie also has an inevitable ending, probably the most inevitable ending that you could possibly have in terms of, obviously this is all building to a very specific night, but the characters are not driving themselves there. Mm -hmm. The the audience is waiting for us to get there, but the characters don't know it's going to happen and they are not actively driving the plot forward the way his other movies do. So that might be why it seemed the, you know, it didn't sort of, yeah, the pacing the, was a little even different. The editing of it, I just found sloppy. Like just cut. Like when Al Pacino is like, "Oh, I did this thing," or "I saw this thing of yours," and it just cuts to it almost like a, like in Family Guy kind of style. <laughs> Remember the time that you guys did this thing, and let's cut back to that thing, or the you know cutting back twice to the acid dip cigarette. I was just kind of like. We know what that is. We mm-hmm. know where you got it already. Mm-hmm. I, I will little, little things like that that kind of bugs me. I really like this movie. The reason I really like this movie, we really can't get to until we talk oh, yeah. about the we, ending. We I have a specific sort of take on what this movie is about that I haven't necessarily. I haven't read a bunch of reviews or whatever. But I haven't necessarily seen people talk about. So this just might be in my own crazy brain or whatever. But I do think on a moment to moment basis, it's not as strong as a lot of his other work. I think individual scenes just aren't quite as sharp and Mm -hmm. they don't seem to have the same purpose. Um, And yeah, I just, the writing and the editing, I don't think is as sharp as a lot of his other work. I would agree there, even though I I really do like this movie. One of the first things that uh, I received a text from a friend who had seen a different screening afterwards saying, well, it seemed kind of self-indulgent. Oh, yes. oh for like, sure. Well, yeah. It's a Tarantino film. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what Tarantino does, is self-indulgent, and never more so than here, because it is so very personal towards oh, yeah. him. Yeah, shot in his neighborhood. You get to see his movie theater yeah. and everything there. I, I don't think anyone can accuse this of being a tight movie. It is meandering. It is a journey I'm enjoying this journey. It's not going where I expected. It's not focused on what the trailer told me to focus on. Mm -hmm. But 
damn, these are some interesting characters. And you've got some real charisma uh, coming out of the three leads of Brad Pitt, oh, for sure. no, Leonardo they're, they're DiCaprio, all and, and yeah. Margaret Roby. Yeah. yeah, and and Jim, I I think I'm with I'm think I'm with you and with the and with the rest of you guys in terms of the idea of the it's not as driving. This is yeah. in a way it may be in that sense it might be that Tarantino had sort of settled down because even in the case of Jackie Brown, why it's not there is scenes of people hanging out, but all, there's a real driving theme that goes all the way through of, oh, for of sure. people aging, like aging and, and getting yeah, yeah, past yeah. the uh, past the things they would they need to do to, to keep surviving, um, and also a uh, uh, cracker jack like intricate like yeah, it's, high, an Elmore, it's an Elmore Leonard book too. exactly, <laughs> so, yeah. and so yeah, here was my my general impressions on it was that it was that it went very much in the in the atmosphere and atmosphere and the setting and was more in and it and I was thinking at a, for a while there I was actually thinking to to Patrick's point about the dry about the driving event that oh is he going to literally make like all it just like be completely tangential just like just like just make the cri- make the crisis be something just external and that mm. the people react to it. and I'm like that's a re-, and for me I thought that was a really interesting direction sure and and it help, and it's an also interesting. I found that while the characters themselves, in terms of the definitions, are not as memorable maybe as some others, mm. and and for me personally, I loved Leonardo DiCaprio in in this film. Oh, yeah, not, he, he shows a lot of vulnerability that I was yes. not expecting. And and the see, I'm not a huge DiCaprio fan because I found him, with the exception of Wolf of Wall Street, to be the world's oldest angst-ridden teenager. He kind of always just goes, oh, I'm so tortured. But this is a film where when the things his character goes through, he owns it. He owns that vulnerability. Yeah. No, I mean, I think, uh, you know, my favorite scene involves uh, the the young actor, um, Julia Butters. Yes. We're going to be probably seeing a lot more of in the future, I'm guessing, based on most people's responses to her in this film. But I just think, like, the highlight there is really just Tarantino knows how to showcase two people being real with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think of Max and Jackie sitting in the kitchen and Jackie Brown or Jules and Vincent sitting down for breakfast at the diner and just like having these really intimate conversations. And, you know, this is when Rick is like, I'm, I, I'm reading this book, but it's also reflecting me and I'm, I, and I'm, feeling this feeling and I'm showing it to you right now mm-hmm. and she's there for him in that moment yes. too. And there that's a that's a particular feeling that I really like about Tarantino. It was happening from from the very first moment I saw that um uh, Vincent Vega was reading Modesty Blaze in the bathroom <laughs> and he just keeps trying to finish. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 a feeling that he has about that that and that's also why he called his movie Pulp Fiction I feel. Yeah, I mean, like, that is, that is like, his proof of concept is, like, Jackie Brown. Is, like, let's take an Elmore Leonard novel, and let's, I mean, and he drastically changes a lot of the details of that, but he does it so it has a lot of emotional impact, and so you care yeah. about the characters, and it's not just about exciting pacing and what's going to happen next. It is about how does it feel to be in this world and to be these people, mm-hmm. and it's, like, that is proof, you know, the proof is in the pudding there. It's, like, you can make a, a B uh, sort of pulp, pulpy kind of a movie and it still have a ton of emotional resonance and these movies have that value they don't you know you don't it doesn't have to be an art film to 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 have that max how do you feel about getting old you're not old you look great (laughs) 
No, I'm asking you, how do you feel about getting over me? Doesn't it bother you? It's not really something I think about. Really? Oh, I, I guess I got a little sensitive about my hair a few years ago. It started falling out, so, you know, I did something about it. How'd you feel about that? I look in the mirror. Looks like me. The uh, the idea that there were these, you know, cheesy westerns that uh, somebody could languish in and not quite become a huge star. Sure. And then, you know, you, you either break like Steve McQueen or you end up uh, having to go to Italy and do spaghetti westerns. So when you get to the scenes where he's filming uh, what, what he hopes is going to be his... Uh, breakthrough out of that uh where he's the bad guy in this uh in this western and he you know is interacting with the little girl and it's it, it's a uh, one of so many examples of that the movie demonstrates the difference between on film artifice and the real relationships going on yeah. behind the scenes because yeah, that scene where, where the little girl says to Leo, that was the best acting I've ever seen. And then Leo's reaction, that was, that was just so human. It was. Just, it was perfect. Just, it's weepy. He's just so deep. And then he just goes, oh, Rick fucking Dalton. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, gets, it, gets the, it gets the fun little twist on it, too. Yeah. It makes sense why that moment's in the trailer, because it's one of the best. Mm-hmm. And, and so that uh, Jackie Brown is actually personally my favorite um, Tarantino. And for that very reason that yeah. you're, because it gets this human quality of the heist thing about the idea that everyone, even like the, um, even the even Mel, the young, <laughs> the 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 young assistant to uh, Samuel L. Jackson, um, she even she was like has she's past her moment, and I feel that 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 sensibility that lens moves into Hollywood, mm. and when when the lens, and that's what I really enjoy about this film because it it really shows that. To Brad's point, when you look at the when you look at that feeling of getting past it, you feel the ironically the knife edge of fame versus endless obscurity is just so arbitrary. If you just get the brakes go one way or the other way, um, you might be able to make it. But otherwise, you just you're just going to languish at best. Here's the look of another winner this fall on CBS. Lancer. Exciting new adventure drama, filmed against breathtaking outdoor locales in the American West. Lancer brings you thrilling action and spectacle. Stirring conflict and drama in the saga of a cattle empire and the men who fought for it. The story of a family name that became a legend. Uh, Mr. Lancer? That's me, yeah. I don't think a Western back then would have been filmed like that, but no. I appreciate it in the no, movie. It's not, the it's not shot like a TV show. It's shot yeah. like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. And, it's, and, and so for a while, they're like, I was, I was wondering, wait a minute. This doesn't really look like... I don't see any cameras. I don't see anyone selling cut. Are we now in this movie? <laughs> like, did we fall in deep? And by contrast, there's a moment where... Um, uh, Brad Pitt visits a ranch in the desert, and that's filmed exactly like a cheesy western for a TV show. Right down to the whole, like it pans from his pants up from his boots, uh, and I literally think you actually see a tumbleweed show up in that that very scene. So he's so it's um, his. He used to name his production company a band apart after after the um, director Jean Luc Godard. And, yeah, yeah. And I, I like to say the thing for the thing for that filmmaker, and the thing that pisses off a lot of people from him is that he kind of 
he if you can do scare quotes about things to make things ironic or not serious or you take it he made he made he's invented 15 different quote marks for all <laughs> sorts of levels of irony people haven't appreciated yet stuff like where like like for example you you think of something and it's like okay that's not serious but i kind of like it seriously anyway stuff like that and here i feel that like that Tarantino's looking at the idea of imagery. What What is it about the, the movies that he enjoys, the TV shows he enjoys? And what do I get out of it? And now here's a moment in history. I'm going to try to do right by the history, but at times I'm going to present it like it's a cheesy movie. I guess certain, certain moments or certain choices, including like having, I mean, Kurt Russell just show up as a stuntman, yeah. co- coordinator or something like that. I'm like, Okay, it's kind of like a little meta touch to uh, Death Proof or something, mm-hmm. and then of course Zoe Bell showing up is like, yeah, that's I like all those things. Those are things are fine. And then all of a sudden, but all of a sudden, he has the choice to have Kurt Russell be the narrator. Yes, during the third act, which mm-hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll get to eventually. But I just uh, there there's some issues with the, with that for me. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm a little curious because I've seen people praise Margot Robbie, and I think one of the interesting things about this movie, and this might be getting a little bit into the ending, is that Sharon Tate is a complete non-factor. Um, her, or less, she has yeah. basically no dimensions to her character. She's just sort of there to build tension because you know what the movie is working towards. But like, she doesn't have really a, a storyline. She doesn't really have sort of a goal she's trying to accomplish. There's no tension. And I mean, I don't. I'm not like the world's biggest. I've seen Valley of the Dolls, but that's about all I know about Sharon <laughs> Tate. So like, may, it might be a great impression. It might be a great performance or whatever. But like, did you guys? Outside of how she's utilized structurally just as a performance, do you think like that was a good performance or because th- to me it was like I, it didn't it meant nothing. I was really mm. impressed with it, but only but for one scene. And it's the scene where she's in the movie theater watching herself. Or watching Sharon Tate. Well, well, yes, because in the, in the, we're actually right. seeing the original uh, movie mm-hmm. and the actress on, on the screen is Sharon Tate. So we, we're dealing with that. But uh, I, mean, I think you're right, Patrick, that there's no actual arc to the character because the movie is not about her. But there are these moments where she creates this presence and I have not seen enough Sharon Tate films to know Sharon Tate's actual presence. But what Margot Robbie did in that scene in the theater where you could just sense the joy and giddiness of her seeing herself on screen and just the idea that she'd go to this movie alone and, you know, and, and you know, another aspect of an ideal love of film being presented in this performance. So that, that scene made me very happy. There is a way where that, uh, that ties into what I was saying about like how it, it may not be character in terms of specific definition, but about the star power informing and, and, and like, and illuminating the character. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as as written, she's she's not really doing too many specific things, but I feel that like Margot Robbie imbues her with a sense of joy, a sense of joyfulness, and almost giddy enthusiasm. Yeah, like wide-eyed wonder at yes the stardom and being mm-hmm. a part of old school Hollywood and the and the joy that she experiences with that and. 
you know, it's, going to that party at the beginning, which mm-hmm. I don't know, like that that the, the, the Damian Lewis as Steve McQueen at, did <laughs> nothing for me. I thought that you was ridiculous. I was. I mean, more, I know it's I know it's for comedic effect. I suppose I was but. more freaked out by the Roman Polanski's Austin Powers outfit, which yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> which was the which may have been the style at the time, but thank God that time has that time has gone. <laughs> right. Um, but a lot of people. I mean, we're not getting to the ending, but we're, a lot of people are moved by you know. This, the, the presence of Sharon Tate and mm-hmm. what the ending is trying to convey. Yeah, the like like that feeling of that feeling of like both the loss and just the chance of grasping at this opportunity to be mm-hmm. on the silver screen. I kind of feel that more maybe more than any other movie Tarantino's made, um, Sharon Tate's portrayal by Margot Robbie is Tarantino's feeling of wow, isn't that just awesome? To just have, because I actually have seen The Wrecking Crew, the movie she sees. It is not in any possible way a good good movie. It doesn't look like it. But but when she's in the theater, fully, when she's in the theater, fully enjoying it, and then it has this brief cut to show her training with Bruce Lee to to get a martial arts thing. It it actually does a great job of tying it into the interaction Lee had with Cliff Booth. Uh, um, Brad Pitt's character earlier, but then also shows that like it's the effort. She, much like Rick Dalton, she's putting in the even though yeah. the movie itself is crap, she's putting in the effort to just try and, to and be on screen. Witnessing the payoff with, and, and, with the ex- audience, right? Yeah. Exactly witnessing, and right down to the fact I was really touched when she puts on these gigantic Coke bottle Coke bottle glasses. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> thinking about the movie now, I just go, oh, okay. So she puts on these Coke bottle glasses to sit in a darkened theater to watch a cheesy Matt Helm film. It's like, holy shit, she's the she's the muse of Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Sharon Tate is a vibe in this film, but a very, very positive and interesting one, I and, find. And she embodies something that this film pursues that I don't think Quentin Tarantino really explores in his other films, which is the idea of innocence. Mm. I think in almost an, any earlier film, uh, she would have been given all this kind of wise-ass dialogue to build her character maybe in the same way that uh, Uma Thurma did, Thurman did in uh, Pulp Fiction, which, by the way, I, I loved that performance. But it, it's a, a testament to his confidence at this point that even though he knows he could write the hell out of dialogue with anything he chooses not to and to just let the visuals and to just let this kind of vibe as you were saying al stand that's why i think partially maybe it's on me because that's what i want out of a quentin tarantino movie (laughs) to some degree like i get really excited by like uh how are these characters going to talk with one another Mm. how are they going to interact with and there's moments there's definite moments with lee i mean i love i do love the scene where they're watching um fbi the episode of fbi yes and they're just hanging out and talking and making these you know uh comments on Mm -hmm. what they're seeing on screen and everything like that i mean again there there are hangout moments that recall jackie brown and his other work that i really responded to but once it takes a turn i kind of it's it's it just I tuned out or something like happened in my brain to where I'm like I don't I don't know how I feel now. What do you mean by once it takes a turn? Well, what's the w- point w- for the, you? Mainly just six months later. Okay, you know the, mm. the flash forward yeah. sort of after he goes to Italy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What did you think of the central relationship between Leonardo and and Brad Pitt? I loved it. I thought they were great together. Anytime they were sharing screen time or 
you know, it could even just be driving in a car. I mean, Tarantino's like, uh, I pretty much, when I was driving with my dad, all we would do is listen to the radio. You'd think that me rambling motor mouth guy would be talking and talking and talking and talking, but really it was just the, my childhood was driving through these streets, sometimes fast, which you obviously can't do anymore in L.A., um, mm-hmm. and, you know, listen to the, the, the radio together. And he sort of creates that feeling, and, it, and that, that part of it works really well. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I really love this relationship. Well I, were, well, I was, like, thinking of, like, films that were that were trying to evoke L.A. in transition, the way the, the, the way this, this film's doing, and the way, say, The Long Goodbye's doing. One film that sort of comes close is this wonderful movie a couple years ago called The Nice Guys. Oh, and sure, I, sure. I really love the, that duo. But even I think even more, I want to see three prequels with, with these, <laughs> these two guys and the, these two guys and their adventures in Hollywood. Well, there's already talk that it's going to be a four-hour version on Netflix. Of this movie, okay, I'm, I'm cool. So, <laughs> yeah, well, there, there's a lot a more case driving where... shots. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't find more. Brad Pitt's character to be just a total reprehensible creep. No, I didn't. I, I uh, no, I didn't. I found that there was. Um, well, uh, there's an implication I, there's, involving. It's his not an wife. implication. <laughs> it's not an implication. It's fact that that he actually did that. That is that is. It's not ambiguous. I mean, okay, he is a wife what? murderer who is just like leering at teenagers. Like yeah, that's, and then, that's and, how he's introduced. And then Rick Dalton is like, "Yeah, but he's a war hero, right?" Which is the which is the uh, Harvey Weinstein that's Quentin Tarantino found, relationship. I found problematic. <laughs> that's that's found like, problematic. I think that is what this movie is about: is that 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 sort Toxic of event? Yeah, and, and like specifically, it is about how Brad Pitt is shot. Um, like this ultimate just hunk, absolutely capable, awesome dude. But like the reality behind that is he is a fucking monster. He's terrible. He's a terrible person. Hmm. That's where the unreliable narrator really comes into this hmm. because Quint in this aspect, Quentin is going back to his roots and presenting us with, you know, gangsters, people who are committing terrible crimes and, you know, talking shit and just but with such style, with such charisma. And Brad Pitt, you know, turns up the charisma here to, to his highest level, which is considerable. It actually reminded me a little bit of what uh, George Clooney did in From Dust Till Dawn uh, with that character, mm-hmm. who was also a, represent, a reprehensible character who we're, despite that, meant to relate to and see the movie and see the action of the movie through his eyes, which is why that Bruce Lee scene scene becomes so interesting because we're seeing that as a flashback from his perspective, remembering where he's kicking Bruce Lee's ass, which has raised some of the controversy of rightfully. So I think, well, well, I mean, unless you look at it as his own, egotistical mm. retelling of the That's event. an interesting that, Yeah, that's yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's ironic. Like it is a joke. It is uh if if one of the gangsters in Reservoir Dogs was going to talk about how tough they were, they'd be like, "Man, I can kick Bruce Lee's ass." Like that mm. is like it is such a preposterous scene that like I don't think for a second you're supposed to take it seriously, not necessarily in terms of it didn't actually happen, but in terms of like Quentin Tarantino is trying to present this as a preposterous thing and he is then that is saying something about like 
uh, you're talking about an era when you know we have that scene at the party where Steve McQueen is watching, and it's like he he she likes the pretty boys, she likes dancing with the two pretty boys, and he never had a chance because he's too masculine and rugged and stuff like that. And that is like the yeah. trans that's like the transition of Hollywood is like the the Western characters of the guys who just get stuff done and they use violence if necessary because that's what it is. And then it's you know by the time you get into the seventies, you're having characters like Al Pacino, you know, you're having stars who are in films like Dog Day Afternoon or you know Panic and Needle Park and stuff like that where it is about how emotional they are it is about that vulnerability it's um about being able to show more of that and like so that's the transition Hollywood's going through and that's hmm. sort of like the the oh I, I we'll talk about the ending too but like this all ties into the ending which I think is equally preposterous and meant to be so <laughs> talking about toxic masculinity and you're talking about like how white supremacy ties into that and people feeling threatened and you know trying to invent reasons for why they feel threatened and like I think this movie is a very uh, both in terms of it being a reaction to Harvey Weinstein and Me Too and also a reaction to that like the current political era, the way that Hateful Eight is, like, I think that's an important that's, factor as well. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. That would make me appreciate he, he it is, more. He is absolutely exploring that. And yeah. I think I, I'm, that's one of the things I really enjoy on uh, on that, that mm-hmm. the, the the masculine sets, like that idea that Steve McQueen is the one criticizing, the, 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 oh, she's, well, she clearly has a type. So I, I and, never and, stood and a he chance. Tra- and it's like, he tries to make it sound like it's tragic. Like, motherfucker, you're Steve McQueen. Right, like, yeah. I do not feel sorry for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I, I took it. I took it as wow. Even uh, I took it as as wow. Even even Steve McQueen just doesn't get doesn't get lucky at one time because there's a type. Yeah, there's yeah. Type. In the sense that the well, and then that's kind of one of the things the world is <laughs> the the idea that the world is passing by. I, this is this is uh, now we're getting to like what I think this actually movie is about. This movie is explicitly about toxic masculinity and sort of how Hollywood propagates that and through the stories it tells, like. The, the actual interesting parts of this movie are the relationship between Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. It's about Leonardo DiCaprio str- struggling to prove to himself that he actually can be a great actor. It's all actual emotional drama, but the movies that he is making that they were talking about, it's him with machine guns and flamethrowers killing right, Nazis. Right. It's like yes. none of that at all. Yes. And like all gender is a performance. And like to an extent, if you are a guy who is performing, you're presenting yourself as a really tough guy that is a learned performance that you are putting on in real not just in films but in real life and when people respond positively that it feels good and i think this movie would be dishonest if it was just criticizing that without acknowledging how seductive it is like tarantino fucking loves these movies like for sure like i think i think he has uh, and whether or not he admits it in interview. Like I think Quentino, Quentin Tarantino is kind of like Spike Lee where marketing Tarantino is not an honest person. It is the guy yeah. who knows that the only way he can keep making the movies he wants to make is by not scaring away audiences by <laughs> being like, right now I, want, I really want to explore toxic masculinity because I think a lot of people aren't thinking like, that's like, oh, that sounds like a boring movie. Well, I'm not going to see that shit. I mean, he's being not necessarily inundated with it, but he's he's been called out. You know, right. You know, and to, to, so like, like him I, being a dick on to Uma Thurman and, and Kill Bill. Right. No, like I, I, I'm not trying to defend him as yeah, yeah, being no, a I know, great I know, person. I know you're not. Or like, 
But there are th- and there, I really there, don't even care if pieces it's... out there that are saying something along those lines of like him defending Polanski or sure you know, like and, and I honestly like I don't I don't read a ton of interviews with him I don't know who he is as a person I also don't believe that artists have full control over the messages that they ha- leave in their movies sure. and oh, yeah. I also don't believe and that they understand their own intent mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. I think a lot mm-hmm. of things just come out um, yeah. and so like to me whatever he says the movies are about or not about like totally irrelevant this is to me how the movie presented to me <laughs> having read nothing about it beforehand like this is a movie about of course like those movies feel great you see uh, I don't know like to jump forward in time like you see Chow Yun Fat in a Hong Kong movie like fucking oh, yeah. two guns blazing and like you know just treating women like garbage and stuff like that it's like it's exciting yes. and it's, 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 and it's seductive of cool, yeah and um, there's a great Ringo Lamb movie like Full Contact and oh, it's, right. it is so it is so homophobic and sexist but it's also amazing and violent and exciting it's one of my favorite movies ever and it's one of those things that's like that is the there's the seductive part of wit, but there's also something destructive about it. Mm-hmm. And this movie, I think, you don't present Brad Pitt as a wife killer who is leering at teenagers, um, and who gets sort of malicious joy out of committing violence or like sadistic pleasure out of like torturing his dog, sort of. Like mm-hmm. you don't present him as that character um, if you just want the audience to cheer for him. Um, You're really getting into the complexity of Quentin Tarantino as a director because there is a tension between the fact that he loves exploitation. Yeah. That he loves the grindhouse. He loves the the movie violence. He loves this stuff. But he's aware of its problems. But he's too smart a director. He's too great a director to just let all that stand without anything being questioned. Right. So then yeah. he goes back to the dichotomy of the fit, the quote-unquote real world versus the fictional world where Leonardo DiCaprio is playing these kind of characters, but then Brad Pitt is kind of living the life <laughs> of a Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> character, which yeah. I think is, is nice. And is the truth of it right, as well, yeah. yeah. Not the, not the film version. And it's never more intense than... than uh, the film's most suspenseful moment, which is when uh, Pitt is uh, goes is brought to the mansion ra- Manson Ranch, and wants to make sure his old friend, uh, played by uh, Bruce Stern, is all right, and he's surrounded by all these you know young teenage hippies, mostly women, and the way and, and all of a sudden. All the the messing around that's been going on throughout the movie pretty much stops, and it becomes, uh, uh, for a good eight minutes, an incredible nail biter. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah that, I mean, look, like, like you before. said, like you said, it becomes the Western TV show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and then turns into like uh, almost like a. a uh, uh al- almost an alien invasion type horror movie as these young as these youngs people are just standing around not saying anything it and does staring the, it does like the assault on precinct 13 it'll cut back and there's just more of them yeah. there like the birds when that happens yeah yeah oh, yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. yeah yeah exactly i mean and and yeah i like when when he turn when he turns on that suspense it's so great and it's he's and, so good at and, that and when he's in that one that in that room where you just hear a tv Various creaking noises, one one very squeaky mouse. <laughs> um, it's 
it turns full horror. It just it actually just reminds me of a of a great scene that illuminates the movie Zodiac, David Fincher's Zodiac. Oh yeah, yeah. When oh, mm. which, where he where a Going character who's been searching basement. for the Zodiac yeah. goes and goes into the basement. Yeah. And this film, which up till that point had been very nice as a procedural, keeps a little bit of a distance. But then it's filmed the cameras tilting, and it's like you're in this guy's mindset mm. now. The the Zodiac owns that character. And and in Zodiac, there's a sense of irony too, because the whole reason he thinks, "Oh my God, I'm about to die," is like a single tidbit where it's like I wrote yeah. the signs uh-huh. and it's, he's doing the thing where he's jumping to conclusions off of a yes. single piece of evidence and like suddenly it becomes a horror movie even uh-huh. though if you think about that scene logically you're like this guy's probably not the Zodiac killer you're probably <laughs> right, saying right. but, yeah. but he plays it like seven mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah but he so, subverts the expectations mm-hmm. here and it's yeah. like you, you feel like it's gonna build to something shocking and then all it's just oh it's just it's just an old guy sleeping and, and you know and I um and I saw uh, I saw a review of the film after I'd seen which illuminates something really really nice about that is that all is that um uh, he Brad Pitt's character Cliff is asking for answers and all these people are telling him this real these really inane things that you wouldn't buy in a standard movie for a second oh he's watching t- he likes to watch TV he naps he's, so we could watch he TV he naps <laughs> so we can watch TV and so you think okay this is you think okay this is completely BS like something horrible no that's actually what happened <laughs> yeah 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 so I, I really recommend you check out a film by uh, Leos Carax I think is his name uh, is mm-hmm. the pronunciation yeah, of his yeah. name he made a film a couple years ago called Holy Motors which basically is about a guy who is on a very specific mission he needs to play roles, right? And there's certain roles requiring to be like a like like look like a David Cronenberg movie. Certain roles are, are like a, become more like a romance. Certain uh, it certain role requires him to be the best musical intermission of all time, and and certain things look like a Coen Brothers film. And as the as scene after scene, you get involved in the role he plays, and then when he jumps out. You you go oh now I have to readjust and the and the end result by the end of that movie and I think the end of this one is it gives us an appreciation of what does it take to get yourself in a moment and even in an unlikely situation as in a cheesy western c- can you get to real emotion real entertainment and real value from what you're watching yeah and I can, and I think I, I maybe it's just like I I I don't respond well to the readjusting. Because mm-hmm. even even with Holy Motors, it's a movie everybody loves, and it's another one I need to watch again too. <laughs> Just because, like, maybe the episodic nature of changing tones and changing emotions from scene to scene mm-hmm. sometimes doesn't click with me, and maybe that's the case here too, to some degree. Because mm-hmm. once we do get to the six months later, and we can transition now into the final act of this film. Yeah, I, I I turned on it a little bit. I just kind of went that didn't sit well in that. Ch- I but part of me is also like, I know he's going to do something different because because I've seen Inglorious Bastards and I kind of have this expectation of where is this going to go? Mm-hmm. How is this going to you know cathartically play out? Mm-hmm. And as it's cathartically playing out for most of the audience, I was actually like. 
I I don't like watching this now. I huh. mean, so we, I, I'm not feeling that catharsis that everybody else is like cheering on this guy bashing a woman into a. Are we gonna Are we gonna get? Yeah, yeah we, 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 we are spoiler alert. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, do you remember yeah. when Mark Wahlberg said if he was on one of the 9/11 planes, he could have stopped the terrorist? <laughs> that is what the ending of this movie okay, is. Okay. It is. It is the. It is the uh, ending of Bad Lieutenant Portocol in New Orleans when there's suddenly a parade of people saying, all your problems have been fixed. And like the whole point of that scene is showing how ludicrous it would be that anything could get solved. This whole thing is like, at like they think they're badasses and this is like their fucking badass fantasy that I'm going to grant to you. And I'm, and it's going to play out. It's not even like, if he wanted to make it exciting, if he wanted to make it a, like a tense fight, if he wanted to make it a cat and mouse thing where they're hiding in the room and they like, he totally could have done that. It is in his power to make oh, for that sure. ending super exciting. But what he did instead is it's just all about how Brad Pitt is the ultimate masculine badass. Like yeah, to the yeah. and then it's just yeah, ter- of course Leonardo DiCaprio is a flamethrower and he just torches someone in his pool. It's like it's uh it's so ridiculous that like that is the point. And I don't think like I think the fact that people find catharsis at the end kind of proves his point about how seductive this can be. But yeah. like I don't think that's really like I I think it's supposed to be uncomfortable. Okay. Um personally. Well, yeah, I, I think it works. Again, both ways. Yeah, uh, it, it's not an accident that early in the film we see the filming of a movie that looks very much like *Inglorious Bastards*, <laughs> because the the ending here is the spiritual successor to the uh, what what happens with happen Hitler? The killing Hitler and yeah, killing yeah. all the Nazis in *Inglorious Bastards*, and you know, so so two things are happening at once. First of all. We've shifted to a strange exploitation comic mega violence kind of thing going on. But there's what was, at least in, in my mind, going on was this kind of dreaded expectation of what might have happened. Yeah, sure. After becoming oh, yeah. so invested in Margot Robbie's performance, seeing her pregnant, knowing the history, I was thinking to myself, I don't want to see. And you, oh, no. and then part I, of it I is wouldn't either. You believe wouldn't Tarantino either. would go there. That he could. He but he yeah. has mm-hmm. he had like he would do it and he has the clout that he could get that movie made. So like you could go into uncharted territory here and that 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 does like make you really dread what's going to happen next. But mm-hmm. he's not just looking at it as the singular event. The Manson murders aren't just to Tarantino and I think to a lot of pop, pop culture are, are, are not is not just about the killers and their victims, but also about the end of an era. The idea that the hippie dream died here, the 60s died here, and was replaced yeah. by something else. So what Quentin Tarantino does, for me, is one of the most powerful things I've ever seen him or, or, or do, which is basically he turns the movie into a prayer, into a... This idea that, no, what we know happened, everything that died in our filmic fantasy version of what was going on there Mm -hmm. doesn't have to die. And of course it did. It's it's a complete fantasy. It's a complete unrealistic. It's a fairy tale once upon a time. Exactly, with the title. But the fact that Tarantino wanted to say that prayer, I think is an incredibly powerful moment that really raises this film to another level. Hmm. See, I'm like, uh, 
I think of it more. Uh, the prayer is a really cool way of putting it yeah. because because uh, I guess for me personally, I kind of think a prayer is sort of wanting something to wanting something to come in, and I I kind of think of it as more of a lament, that sort of an acknowledgement that this that that it was not that it is a fairy tale, and that while we could wish it real, it's it's clearly not not the case. Yeah. Um, to to the uh, to uh, Jim, I think your point about the 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 person bashing the head. There's a there's a point at the end where she where where a woman's head is bashed not once, not twice, but against seemingly against not just against like seven surfaces, mm-hmm. but I want to say like three split straight up movie posters, and and oh, so yeah. that's an ex- that's a that's a case where I'm just like that this guy. He puts in a scene where you can look at it so many different ways. Because on the one hand, on the one hand, this is a, a, a classic case of revenge, or like the which you can yeah. argue so many Tarantino, almost all of them are cases of revenge. On the other hand, is there a part of Tarantino's character that gets some enjoyment out of the grindhouse thrills, out of seeing? people's bodies get like horribly or abused. just doing things he knows he should not mm-hmm. that's right sure. there, there, well they're pushing is... buttons he knows that he should not push that that is and, and then and people also... complained about hateful eight and the treatment of Jennifer yeah. jason lee as well yeah so. and then in in a, in a very weird dario argento touch in um inglorious bastards when Di- diane kruger's character is choked that's actually tarantino's hands around her throat so so hmm. right so both in the sense of like he's aware hmm. of how inappropriate it is but he also might kind of like to do that too. But then, and but then, the fact that it's not three times, but like seven times, is he's highlighting it. He's putting a marker on. Look at this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is clearly weird, wrong, strange, not appropriate, and, and so on. And the audience is cheering it on too. When at least when I saw it. So well, there's there's another dimension on. Yeah, sorry yeah. to interrupt. Oh, no, but yeah, there's another dimension on that too. Sure. Like in, it's critical. I think it's critical to point out that the more you know about the incident of the Manson family's yeah. encounters with Sharon Tate and company at that house on on Cello Drive, the more the more feeling you're going to get out of that scene. Like the person that is the most singularly brutal moment that happens when when the people are dispatched, but that person. She is the one who did the most heinous thing in that house. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, it's a, in a way you can also look at it as Tarantino getting the ultimate example of as much revenge as you can against that person. Now, in terms of the story, obviously Brad Pitt's character doesn't know what she right, would right, would right. have done. Yeah. But in terms of the people's knowledge of Manson, those are. Uh, uh, that is gets really really validated on <laughs> at least on a cathar- on a cathartic level. And we also have to keep in mind that revenge is a theme throughout every single Tarantino. Mm. Show. I, more or less. So there's something very different. So okay, so okay. First, I want to go back. Uh, I was recently on a podcast called Genre Grinder on Now Playing Network. It's a um, great we talked podcast. about the slasher movies of 1981. <laughs> 41 sure. slasher movies wow. came out in 1981. <laughs> uh, probably around 30 when you take away the edge cases. But at any rate, <laughs> I watched a lot of slasher movies in the past month. And one of the key things is the villain gets their comeuppance in the end. And it's always a big, graphically violent, sort of climactic moment. Mm-hmm. But it's usually... To, for maximum catharsis, it's about a single explosive moment. It's like a shotgun blast to the head and their head explodes yes. or they like get yeah. set on fire. Yeah. It's not long and ling- it does not linger yes. on the villain's suffering because you still want to cheer for the people. Um, like you said, Brad Pitt does not know who she is. Mm-hmm. Brad Pitt 
is just a person who wants to commit violence and knows that in society there are socially acceptable ways such as war um, or like goading someone into a fight or home invasion. And he just goes through his life waiting for those hmm. things to happen. And he that's all he cares about is I now have an excuse to be sadistic and cruel. Mm, the Steven Seagal defense, yeah. <laughs> I don't think this movie, like the, the difference between the sort of historical rewriting of this as opposed to Django Unchained or Inglorious Bastards is the Nazis was, the Nazis were a party that it's not just Hitler. It was a large systemic uh, sort of force of anti-Semitism and racism and mass extermination. And like that actually can't be dealt with. You can't do a movie where they storm into a concentration camp or it's, or you could, but it was just like, it's more satisfying to just find a fine point at the end and, you know, shoot Hitler in the face a hundred times or whatever. Slavery was a genocide, a mass, you know, a mass institutional genocide, but you can't, take on institutions in a revenge movie really because you can't have that satisfying catharsis so you're just going to blow away a bunch of these asshole you know right. slave owners like this was an act by a single person historically it, it doesn't have the same satisfaction because it's not a, there's not a larger theme behind it it's not like the Manson family were one of a hundred murderous cults it's just a weird aberration that happened at, that happened to happen at the end of the 60s there's nothing I don't feel inevitable about what happened with the Manson family it just it just did mm -hmm. um, mm. and like I don't think you and I think whether or not he thinks this is going to be as cathartic as those other films and have the same effect I don't think it does because of that okay well, it's, I, a and I it's a different scale but I, I do think it is more than just the particular incident I think it's kind of, I, I think the Manson murders are meant, meant to represent this loss of innocence of the transition of old Hollywood to new Hollywood. So when he kills the Manson murderers, instead of having them kill Sharon Tate and their victims, he's basically saying it's not just for Sharon Tate. It's, 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 it's for this entire old Hollywood system uh, yeah. that we've been uh, glorifying throughout the entire film. I think a good comparison point for this movie is Peter Bogdanovich's first movie, Targets, oh, which yeah. also takes a generational look at this as uh, Boris Karloff, an elderly Boris Karloff, is pitted uh, with his old monster movie style as, a, as an actor against a, in this took, as a 1968 film, a uh, sniper serial killer with no personality, with no... Uh, with no movie charisma, so to speak. And so that movie basically uh, presents a clash between the old Hollywood of the 1930s and, 19, and the 1960s. And I think this movie tries for that same effect. Mm. That's interesting. I yeah. mean, it, I, think, I think for me personally, that's, that's like an interesting narrative. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's true. I don't know if the Hollywood was innocent in the 60s. I don't know if this movie depicts oh, no, Hollywood no, it's being not innocent in the 60s. No, no, none of that is true, but it is what has become our myth. Right. Of and I, yeah, I, I, commenting I on think the myth. part of this movie is like, 
that's arbitrary. Like the mm-hmm. fact that it's the Manson family at the end of this is like it could be anyone invading oh, yeah. their home, and that would yeah. all play out the Charles exact Manson same way. Himself is barely in this movie. Well, that's right. my favorite. Well, that's my actually one of my favorite details upon it. I was very very worried, as you could imagine, with the idea. Once we found out it was about the about Sharon Tate was going to be a character, and we and it was going to de- and the Mansons were going to be a. Person, uh, persona and element in the movie, I was very, very worried that they would, because Tarantino is not really known for his tastefulness, to put, no. it, to put it mildly. And so, I, so when, when I first thought it was a hangout movie, I actually felt a sort of relief because, okay, let's just look at the environment. Maybe the environment can change after the disaster happens, mm-hmm, and we just mm-hmm. see how these people react That's to what it. I thought it was going to yeah, be yeah, as yeah. well. It'd mm-hmm. be like a uh, some, uh, son of, Summer of Sam sort of yeah, a movie. Yeah, exactly. And so I am, uh, and so once the, on the other hand, once six months later comes in, and then they start putting in the, like, the Law and Order style time, mm-hmm. uh, time stamps in the lower right corner, I was like, uh-oh. And yeah. then, and I, I read Vincent Bugliosi's book, Helter Skelter, about the man uh, uh, incident and um, and the more and more you started seeing the the char- the characters their names and this and the situations of, on on Spawn's ranch, those were actually more they were more they were accurate and the more accurate it was the more I had this incredible feeling of trepidation, but the way he squared the circle is not just a genius move. Because it's it it avoids the idea that oh these guys were saved because of Tarantino's benefit by directing <laughs> like the heroes to come in and save the day, but it points out that how arbitrary it is, which is great uh. for two reasons. For one thing, it's the theme of the movie, right? Like they cut when there's a great scene where they uh, CGI um, uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's face over a scene from The Great Escape. To which, oh, what, what could have been? Uh, could a person of Le- uh, if if he just got that if he won the role? Yeah, yeah. And there's so many sense of opportunities that are so scant, and and you might be lost forever. And so that gets that that gets that feeling. But also, it actually ties into the details of the murders themselves because Manson simply ordered people to kill who was in the house. There's actually nothing for Sharon Tate or or Roman Polanski or their friends that that Manson wanted dead. There wasn't any particular innocence or anything like that. It was so arbitrary in the beginning. And so... The way I feel, this may be—it's <laughs> a weird thing to say—but but, but uh, Brad, Brad really kicked kicked it into high gear when he said, "Al, I think this might be uh, uh, Tarantino's most loving movie." And I'm like, "Loving's not an adjective I usually would use," but I think the sentiment behind the end, or one of the sentiments, is is that Tarantino is aware as a filmmaker of the power of making mythic characters. He's already introduced characters into the myth, the, the, the thieves from Reservoir Dogs, Vincent Vegas, everything Samuel L. Jackson mm-hmm. does. He knows that these people can have a power that surpasses the movie oh, screen yeah. and, and get into the popular consciousness. Yeah. And when he was growing up, those movies that he liked so much... They just got turned. They got warped and made strange and, and odd and, and, and more vulgar because of the influence of the, how the Manson murders cast a pall upon society. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, so I think all the experimentation between what's movie real and what's real real in the movie reaches a kind of culmination of a mission statement. To the extent that there's a mission statement in, in there, or one of the mission statements, mm-hmm. is the biggest myth in Hollywood is of the Mansons that turns the hippie movement and makes it turn e- evil and evil and scary. And, and, and he looks at these guys and he goes, these guys are useless punks. 
the how dare these useless how dare these worthless excuses for humanity by virtue become now these celebrities <laughs> and Sharon Tate who made who is not treated as a great actress in this movie but she's treated as someone who's just a, a really nice spirit who does not deserve to be the the quote unquote eternal victim of of the 60s counterculture and that's unfortunately when you say the word Sharon Tate today it's that's the only thing that comes up for the most part so sure. i feel it's a sense as as I watch these events unfold, he's trying to rehabilitate it. He's saying, "I'm going to take my, a new myth. I make I'll take my the things that I really enjoy: vulgar violence, <laughs> ridiculous comedy, way over the top situations, and I'm going to see, I'm going to try to make Sharon Tate like and this whole incident in a new mythic form to displace." how awful those things are and like just how all the Manson family members are undercut. They're like, they recognize this guy's a real star. They have all these arguments and squabbles. One of them says, Oh, I, I, I left my knife. And then she just <laughs> drives off. <laughs> those are always undercut. And yet when, when uh, Brad Pitt's character is called into action, it's like, yeah, we're going to give you the ultimate dis destruction. And, and when a certain flame, and of course, Leonardo yes. DiCaprio's character takes all the credit. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Everyone thinks it's him. Yeah. I mean, in that, in that way, it's just, that's, just, that's literally just a metaphor for filmmaking. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 It's <laughs> like Steve McQueen didn't jump over that fence. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that, that, that is like the world of Hollywood. It's this like wild bubble where people have been told and have been portrayed tough guys for so long they think they are. Like, did you read that? I think it was a Washington Post article recently, and it was about all the different contracts that like The Rock and like Jason Statham have where it's like, I can't lose this fight. Like I, you know, if I'm gonna make a movie, I can only get punched three times. Like, like they all have these absolutely ludicrous things, and it's that conversation Al Pacino has in the beginning with Leonardo DiCaprio, where he's like, "People are gonna see you differently because you keep losing fights," you know. And it's like this idea of like you have to protect this like tough guy yeah, the, image, um, and it's about like yeah, it's about like how bullshit all of that is. Um, meanwhile, I think Keanu Reeves, he's like, "All right, I can't have John Wick kill these guys. They're too good. They beat him." <laughs> can hold his own but that's all I'm going to allow there because he's still, but like there is this idea of like I said like going back to like the Mark Wahlberg thing where you just get this like ridiculous inflated sense of self and who you mm -hmm. are because you live in this totally phony world mm -hmm. um, and that is like about this movie is about how like yes these these movies are great and yes it can feel great to actually produce art that does have meaning and you do care about the characters and there is a human side to even a pulpy pilot for a, a cowboy show but like but like in the end, like it's bullshit. And like that's why that's like that's why it's bad that it's so seductive and it feels so good is because like all of this is completely phony. And I'm really gonna point out how phony all of this is. Well, and I wish I enjoyed it. That's the thing, is like <laughs> I, I I guess when it came down to like pure enjoyment level for me. I just didn't. I, didn't I mean, yeah, like, I, like I, I think this movie is really smart and saying a lot of interesting things. But I do, like I said, like at the beginning, I do think in general it's not as sharp as some of his other work. The editing isn't quite as tense. The scene with Brad Pitt at the ranch, like if you look at comparable scenes in Inglorious Bastards, like I think those scenes are better. You know, oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like so, I definitely agree with you on that front. But I, I mean, the ideas it's presenting. It gets me excited to watch it again, for mm -hmm. sure. With all this in mind, well, the, well, in in terms of the editing, I'm yeah, I'm with Patrick and 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 you guys on that. In that, in that, I wouldn't like even the the Family Guys asides where they cut to it. I think each one of those scenes does help, but the scenes themselves, 
they, there's a lot of tightening it could go. Like, mm-hmm. did you oh, need yeah. to, did you need to have like uh, eight cuts to the Manson family watching TV, for example? <laughs> no, maybe you could get away with three. <laughs> well, that, that, that seems funny because it's literally someone telling what's happening outside of the ranch as if they're watching a TV show and describing what's yes, happening. That is like, great, yes. the bad guy just yeah, rode yeah, onto yeah. the Tim. Oh, yes. it looks like he's got like, uh-huh. she's narrating the events of them as they're watching TV as if she's still watching TV. That's right. That's a, no, that's a great it, point. It could that's have a been great tighter point. if we just cut out all the lady feet. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> that's, yeah, you want to that's... talk about indulgent. Um, but I mean, like, that's also like, yeah, the Manson family is also bullshit. Like, they were living in a bullshit fantasy world where they, they, they thought they had it all figured out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but they're like even the the woman in the back seat uh, or girl. I don't know how old she is, but at any rate, who's who's making the point about like she makes the speech that makes them change their target from Roman Polanski's house to uh, mm-hmm. Rick's house is like. Maybe it's like violent. Like she's making good points, but she's still full of shit. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like yeah. there's something there, but like she she's not really making the right conclusions. Well, the making. Well, you put Tarantino a little bit to a T when you say making good points, but there's a little full of yeah, shit yeah, yeah, going absolutely. on. Absolutely. Okay, <laughs> because she could very well be criticizing Tarantino movies themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I find his. Uh, yeah, there's some filmmakers who can have a definite perspective on mm-hmm. like, that this is definitely what I want to Michael Hanke to like the you had mentioned earlier this is what I want you to get out of this and like and and Tar- uh, Tarantino too I think's a measure that I really enjoy he's much more exploratory I think you Patrick you made an amazing a great point about how in horror movies usually the moment of catharsis where the bad guy is dispatched it's done it's it's all it's done a big moment. At, it's jaws exploding exactly mm-hmm. it's all done at once and Tarantino's two, he, there's something about him that is like, I'm not going to let that go. And that's one of the nice things about the ending here that I think he didn't let that go. Because when you have someone torture from a flamethrower, that's, that's great. It cuts back to the person's charred body. Mm-hmm. And then that's it, the reality. Yeah. And, yeah, and then you also see the follow-up. Someone puts in an ambulance and then to the extent that you're saying it's all bullshit, he puts a real good tweak on it. Because... You have DiCaprio's character. He's talking to some shadowy figure on the other side of the gate. And then the gate slowly creaks open and you have an isolated path dimly lit upwards. And you get there and he walks into a (laughs) God's eye view of of getting greeted. And someone in a review put it really nicely. At that moment, DiCaprio... You, if you want to make the argument that DiCaprio and, and, and Pitt didn't survive, and now he's joining the dead people, hmm. that's a really uh, fascinating well, I guess, way. Like, it's a, like the way the taxi driver ending almost yeah, plays. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, like, yeah, yes, yeah. yes, it, and and it, it key at the very well, very end. One of the last things that are said before the credit sequence is like, "Ooh, that's I thought was exquisite because." Because as they greet as they greet Rick Dalton, they go, "Hey, you're Rick Dalton." It's like, okay, you know what? Like, and 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 in the moment, in the moment, I was just I was rolling with it, but like, okay, people who hang out at Half Sagrado, they're not watching Rick Bounty Law, okay? Mm-hmm. But then it's followed up by someone saying. Yeah, you're a great actor. <laughs> to which I'm like, okay, that's exact kind of the, exactly the thing that Leonardo DiCaprio's mm-hmm. character wants to hear. So just the fact that it's so perfect is like, that's great because it's too perfect. Not- At the very end, it gives us a little tweak to go, yeah, yeah. maybe we shouldn't go and say, this is what. But it is also. Not to it- mention that it's implied that he will eventually. Uh, 
meet Roman Polanski and perhaps get a role mm-hmm. in Roman Polanski. Oh man, the fan fiction that could come movie. from this movie. And, and, and <laughs> there are, which, by, there the, are which, by the way, he said earlier in the movie, oh, if only I got a chance right. to talk to Polanski. And mm-hmm. the ending implies that. And you also see kind of real life examples of people who were in Dalton's position becoming superstars. Burt Reynolds' career is one of the models for the character. You could also look at uh, Clint Eastwood's Mm -hmm. career, going from Rawhide into the spaghetti westerns into Superstar. And you know the story, like if going back to the conversation Al Pacino has about people needing to see him as a tough guy or whatever, the story of what happened that night is going to be that he killed all the people in his home. Nice. And it's going to propagate, and it's going to be like... Uh, another another uh, world of entertainment uh, where toxic masculinity runs rampant and uh, there's a lot of sort of phoniness is rap music and there's a lot of rappers who were sort of middling and didn't have a lot of buzz and then like 50 Cent got shot five times and survived and then suddenly the myth of 50 mm-hmm. Cent was like holy shit this guy's the real deal or like Gucci Mane I think the same thing like someone sent Hitman to his house and he killed them and then all of a sudden Gucci Mane was like the biggest rapper going in Atlanta and like there there is this like idea of like and everyone and the, and of course it's going to keep happening because the society around them values this as well they really want to know that you could kill someone in real life and it's like that's something that is valuable they, to the audience the pop culture adopted embrace uh, Scarface uh, yeah, yeah. yeah to that degree I'm, I'm going to I'm going to throw an incredibly crazy tangent on that very point mm-hmm. it, that was so much of a better career move for Reagan than Grenada yeah <laughs> 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 yeah, Good yeah, it, but that's a great. Yeah, that's a great point. It turns out that uh, that both. It's not just the myth of like what we what we as an audience members know of Sharon Tate. What we know about Quentin Tarantino. He's an iconic director right now in his mm-hmm. own right. Oh, but for sure. Even in the story of the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he can be a he's going to be a mythic figure due to the crazy actions that happened that weren't at all. What's what the world is going to know about? Right, it had nothing to do with what he even did, or like he, it, it's just totally fell in his lap. It's yeah. it's more BS. Yeah, yeah, so fascinating. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating a... now to even watch uh, Death Proof and the catharsis you get at the very end, knowing mm-hmm. you know post Me Too move, movement and knowing Weinstein, knowing all this stuff, and picturing like almost projecting uh, you know Kurt Russell's character as yeah. being one of these horrible men, and watching him get pummeled like that. I'm cheering that on. Well, Whereas, like, and, here, that, but that, and that is like closer to like that's the straightforward way you yeah, do it is you have yeah. the one shot and it's like of, a the, slasher. of the foot caving in his face and then right. everyone cheers and freezes <laughs> <Free Freeze. Freeze. laughs> immediately <laughs> the movie ends. Yeah. Which many, many of those cop shows that uh, that Tarantino has enjoyed have mm-hmm. the very free, where someone does a quip at the bad guy's expense, such as like say, uh, yeah, everyone was okay except for the hippies. And they laugh, rear back, and they, have the, and they have the freeze frame. There should have been a laugh track at that moment. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah which, I wouldn't, which I wouldn't put it past it, including uh, the laugh. I don't know if the laugh track was one of his original story elements of the Natural Born Killers, which he wrote in Oliver yes. Stone. Because that's one of the most, point, uh, most uh, powerful scenes is an absolutely evil, malevolent performance by Rodney Dangerfield, of all people, with set to a laugh track, mm-hmm. really, all that's talk about taking a lens of a culture and mashing it right in front of our faces. Mm-hmm. I mean, here this film is a more. It's it, it has more elements, some more, yeah. more yeah. elements of entertainment and humor. And I think, and I think it's like Tarantino knows that's how he can keep doing what he's doing. If he wants to keep getting major movie stars to be in big releases in movies where he has complete creative control in like modern day Hollywood, he has to present it in a way that the people who aren't going to pick up on all that are 
are just going to be like, oh man, the girl's face exploded and then he came out with a flamethrower. It was hilarious. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. he needs to be able to play, he can't go full Haneke. Nor would he want no. to. No, no, it, no, it's, it's he true. He actually does love this stuff. And, and, if, and if, like, and if, and if his sort of stepping on both sides of the line, like if that like leads some people to just sort of not want to participate in the films at all, and they're just like, I just, I just feel like there's, it's too easy for audience members to walk away um, taking the exact opposite impression. Like I totally understand that feeling, but like no, for me, that is like that is what Hateful Eight is about. Hateful Eight is about I, I walked away from Hateful Eight confused that a lot of people thought Samuel L. Jackson was a hero because Samuel L. Jackson's mm. are a horrific person in that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, everybody, like, everybody is. Like a lot of people they walked away from Django and Chain. They were like, I didn't like that Django wasn't the main character. And I'm like, what are you talking? Like he's absolutely the main character. Christoph Waltz is terrible because Christoph Waltz puts Django in all of these situations where he can get killed and he doesn't care at all. And he No, he's very selfish. He's trying he's super selfish. He's trying to and he and like to me I think that right. is another movie that is Quentin Tarantino purposefully or not being self-reflective about Christoph Waltz is the director character telling this black man here's what you'd be here's how and then in the end it's like no that is not the way this is going to work I have to discover that for myself and he's self-critical about the idea that he can create myths for other races and Mm. and like that to me is like an important part of Django Unchained is that people think oh the third act's kind of flabby because it just has that little diverge but like that is what the movie's about is no I don't need his help I will do this my way myself through my own energies because like I am the most important character in this movie not Christoph Waltz and like I think that element is in especially his later films everything like I think Glorious Bastard sort of just knocked something loose in him and he's like he just stumbled on a way of working like I don't like Kill Bill is a revenge film, but I think Kill Bill is a more indulgent film in that I don't yeah, think a he has a lot of like specific purposes other than I fucking love these movies. What if I did one? <laughs> um, but like I think everything post Inglorious Bastards, there's something uh, there's there's something that he is working through on a deeper level um, that I find really interesting. Even if I do like think like yo, you, you don't need to use the N-word in all your movies. Like, you don't... And, like, this yeah. movie has, uh, like, a slur uh, towards Mexicans or whatever in a moment. But, like, right, right, right. It, this movie... And it actually absolutely could have. It would be nothing for those characters to say the N-word. It is... This is an N-word-free Tarantino yeah, movie. Shocking, what a sellout. <laughs> like, I, I, in no, I in no way think, like, oh, Tarantino can do no wrong, and I am, you know, I'm, not, I'm totally non-ambivalent about how I feel about his works at all. But I do think... Anyone who walks away with this from this movie or from Hateful Eight purely saying, "Oh, it's just misogynist power fantasy," like there's That's a lot that you're purposefully said. ignoring. Yeah, um, or not purposefully. I mean, you know, people things hit people yeah. different ways. Sure, but like no, yeah, for me, there's so much more to it than that um, mm-hmm. that I that I find fascinating. <laughs> And we've only seen this film once. I, I can imagine that uh, a rewatch is going to yeah. bring about even more interesting concepts. That's what I'm hoping ideas. for. Oh, definitely. Especially when each I've I've said that like each movie is like two films because one, especially for this one, I make sure to know nothing whatsoever about it. So when when the the turn happened, that was something completely fresh and new. 
But now when I see it again, now that you know what the movie is and more importantly what the movie isn't, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. you maybe and I feel that the, I feel anyway. There's a lot of your brain works in and, a different way yeah. seeing mm-hmm. it a second yeah, time. Exactly, yeah. looking at looking at just first off from Brad's point, diving into the Hollywood scene and all the details and all of his beloved things that he's referencing and his creations like the. I believe what vicious brand dog, <laughs> the vicious dog dog food, for example, raccoon flavor, <laughs> rat, rat flavor, yeah, that's hilarious, rat flavor, that's right. Yeah. And, and you're gonna look at like to, to go to someone like Tarantino affiliated. Like I think a good counterpoint to this is like Eli Roth, who also has sort of a love of pushing buttons and do it, and specifically going places he knows he's not supposed to. Mm-hmm. And I think he never hits that same. I think he doesn't like if you watch a movie like Knock Knock. I do think that movie is misogynistic, and I do think that uh, movie yeah. fails to sort of examine it in the way that Tarantino does in his films like Green Inferno I think is a is a failure politically and yeah. like but it's it's in, like it's it's a good counterpoint to see what ha- what the movies look like when that doesn't work. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. He, like Eli Roth, like even when he, it's it's meant to like be, have a, a sort of a point, like in the idea of like tourists in Eastern Europe for mm-hmm. hostels, yeah. or like the idea of like Western um, um, uh, people have this sense of entitlement and safety that's not at all should all be evident. Even when Eli Roth has a point, it's. Very much that one point or one one or two points, or sure. it's like it's not layered. Like, yeah. Meanwhile, I, I'm I'm very taken by something Tarantino said when they had uh, when uh, about why he made Reservoir Dogs. Uh, he was saying when you when he thought about the story, he was like, well, what about? Okay, there's a heist, but what about? What if this happens? What if this happens? It's that spirit which Eli Roth, I think, really does not have as much prevalent as yeah. Tarantino. There's a sense of like, okay, sure, I've done this and I really like it, or this is really cool, but what if? But what if? But what if? And 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 I that spirit I think is still evident in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm-hmm. and that I think also helps mm-hmm. in rewarding again because you also when you see how things do play out, you wonder how could have? What if? Yeah. What if? Well, I think uh, you know, in something like Reservoir Dogs, I thought it was really smart and interesting of him to cut away from seeing the cop's ear getting cut off. When I first saw that shot and the camera slowly begins yep. to like not look at it, I was like that. That was when I was really young and getting into film. I was like, wow, what an mm-hmm. interesting idea to not show it because you're yeah. expecting to see it. Yeah. And of course, you don't want to see it, but you also kind of want to see mm-hmm. it. Right. So t- here, in, in, with, the, with the final act of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I didn't want to see it. And that's something I, I kind of... I love, I mean, I love the Evil Dead movies. I love gore. I don't mind it. It's, I'm not a prude. But the context some, is so wildly different yeah. in Evil oh, Dead movies. Yeah. yeah, 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 I know. And then, like then, when, they chop, when they chop their girlfriend into, into pieces <laughs> in Evil Dead, like it, it means something so different course, than the violence of, of the end of this yeah. film. So there's yes. a difference between realistic gore and, yeah. and cartoony mm-hmm. gore. And uh, Tarantino always has a different approach. Like you said, in, in his early career, also in Pulp Fiction, uh, when uh, Marvin gets his head blown mm-hmm, off, you don't, mm-hmm. you don't see that. A- and in a lot of ways, I think that's the better way to go because yeah. what you can imagine is going to be more powerful. And what's funny is at the time, that shown. movie was considered wildly violent. Right, because people <laughs> filled that in. Yeah, people sure. thought they saw the cop getting his ears cut off. They thought they saw the guy getting his head blown off. But they didn't. Now, by the time you get to Kill Bill, he is going to show mm-hmm. it, but in the most cartoony, oh, yeah. ridiculous... Blood splattering um, everywhere, like Evil Dead. Than, <laughs> redder than red blood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now... But then once... Uh, you're right, I think, Patrick, that there is a, uh, a mark of delineation in his career that starts with Inglorious Bastards. Because then he starts using graphic violence in a way that 
does th- th- that is both disturbing, but also in a way that he clearly is enjoying presenting to us because yeah, that's yeah. his mo as a filmmaker. But I mean, for me, Hateful Eight is probably the most disturbing. Yeah, uh, yeah. gore wise. Yeah. Oh, and a lot of, of people have stuff. negative reactions. Uh, yeah, and and, and, and mm. I want to give him a little bit of credit here because I I do have movies I won't see because I I do have some sensitivity to very graphic, realistic gore, and a lot of the worst gore moments are done in a very dark uh, environment and, and you quick edits, shadows, yeah. quick edits. You you don't, uh, yeah, you 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 don't get the kind of effect. Uh, that I think you did in Hateful Eight. Like the 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 actual like uh, special effect makeup is essentially the same gag as the beginning of Irreversible, but it's Irreversible. It's all one uninterrupt, uninterrupted yeah. shot, and so it feels very different and way more disturbing than. I mean, I still think this is disturbing, but like. It, it, it's not quite as unpalatable in uh, What's Upon a Time in Hollywood. And also the fact that it's done like seven to seven things in seven different angles. Mm-hmm. You get the sense of, okay, what's this object? Where's yeah. this object? It, it, it almost it almost begets to the darkly comic at, at that point. And, and yeah, I'm totally with you guys. And I well, since Inglorious Bastards, like... Uh, like Mia Wallace, he takes the ending scenes of violence and he makes the dot, 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 dot square to mm-hmm. highlight that and say, okay, this is what I really want. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and what does it mean in each, in both Inglorious Bastards, the end of Hateful Eight and the end of, uh, and the end of this one? Well, the best thing I can say, too, about this movie are, are the conversations being had, whether they're on podcasts or think pieces out there. And some of them are very reactionary, and I expected that. I expected a lot of people to be like, I, let's cancel Tarantino. It's done. But, and there, but on the other hand, there are also people who will not hear any criticism of Tarantino. Or yeah, there, oh, yeah, there, yeah, yeah, there yeah, are totally. cer- there's a certain class of director that, Tar- that Tarantino belongs to where there is a knee-jerk, I must defend this at all costs. And it's like, no, there are proper, like, there are real criticisms to make of his work, yeah. you know? I do feel that way about Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, Paul Thomas Anderson is one of those people that, yeah. like, I never hear my criticisms refuted. I just hear no. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, yeah, Work the, for me. <laughs> Sorry. There, there's a moment in, in the film that Brad mentioned, where I would, which I would all absolutely concur, is so is so great at uh, uh, comparison with this film, and Targets, Bogdanovich's Targets, mm-hmm. in how it deals with movie violence. What do oh, we yeah, get yeah, on movie yeah. violence versus at a, at a drive-in movie deal, theater? And how to deal, right, and how to deal with real violence, and how does how do we as a society, and how do we as people rectify that four men on a search each man different living his own way searching discovering numero uno the new thing in colognes for men one of tarantino's most brilliant images is in once upon a time in hollywood i feel near at the ending scene they bust in through the house, and it's in many way, in every way for them, the wrong house. And the one guy, Tex, goes and points a gun and says a line that actually was quoted by one of the oh, members. Right. The devil, like said, "I'm, I'm, I'm from, I'm the devil, and I'm, co- I'm come from the devil. I'm here to do his work." And Brad Pitt's reply is, "No, you was a stupid. You had a stupider name." <laughs> but then there's an image where he's pointing the gun, and Brad Pitt's response is to pull out his finger and point right at him, and Tarantino frames it 
in the side side by side yeah. on one side or the other. So I think both crit both both incredible critics and um, people who are uh, incredible fans of Tarantino should keep that image in mind when they think of like of the of like oh my god my reaction is like I has to surpass anything. Tarantino wants to show there's another side and in that image he is making the comparison explicit. Um, on, on the other hand, I do think there are real questions to have about ethics um, in terms of consuming entertainment where it's like, should we listen to Michael Jackson music? Should we listen to R. Kelly's music? Should I go and financially support the new Woody Allen movie when that comes out? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah. Like, those are real questions. So anyone who hears stories about, like, how he treated Uma Thurman or, like, how his response was to Harvey Weinstein and how he did not, like, and anyone's response is, all right, I'm done with Tarantino. Like, I don't care how good or bad or whatever the movies are. Like, I'm not going to support that. I totally think that's fair and oh, valid. Is yeah, to yeah, just yeah. to take yourself out of it and go, no. Like, I'm just not going to... Yeah support that Matt, like Matt, Matt Gamble's going on record and saying I'm never going to see another Polanski movie right like mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to support it in any way like I think once Polanski dies uh, or once Woody Allen dies like I'll probably go back to watching their movie like Woody Allen is I considered my favorite filmmaker for a large percentage of my life and like I, I am at the point now where I'm not watching any of his old movies on DVD or his new stuff until he's dead and then I can just sort of know <laughs> that nothing will ever even me talking about it can't go towards contributing to him. And I think that's sure. totally fair. Um, if for individual people, the where they draw the lines is like, no, Tarantino has crossed that line. Right, everyone yeah. has to make their own decision. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, for me, I like to have a dividing line between the art and the artists oh, because yeah, I, I really think approach. that if it, that the risk of going too far down that road is we just don't know about what some of these other people have been into. And eventually mm-hmm. we're not going to be able to watch much if uh, we hold, if we have a morals clause for every uh, actor and director. Yeah. On the we, other hand though, that will never change if we don't, do, like we won't be able to watch much because at this point the way the system is set up is that these kinds of men get free reign and can keep doing it no matter what they do. Brian Singer can still make you know Bohemian Rhapsody and make uh, be super successful despite what everyone in Hollywood knows mm. about Brian Singer. Like at a certain point, you do have to say okay, we can't watch much, but maybe then new spaces will open up for other people who are not yeah. doing that. Like, and so you, I do think there is, uh, I mean, you know, this is a personal choice or whatever, but I, I do feel an imperative to not uh, open up spaces to certain people. Uh, certainly, while they're still alive, I'm not saying lock up every person in jail who has been accused of something, but at the same time, like, I don't think that everyone should get, always get it because there's ambiguity. Everyone always gets a free pass towards all actions. Yeah, no, and it makes I mean, sense. this is a totally different conversation. <laughs> yeah. I no, only but- brought it up because I feel that I don't want to describe only people who criticize Tarantino as being reactionary. Like, yeah, I yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I want but- to, I want to give leeway on both sides on, on that issue because mm-hmm. I, I, I do think that is important. We're here talking about this movie. We're three out of the four of us are very positive on this movie if, if anyone cares about what we have to say, this is promoting the film. Like, I do think there is some sort of ethical responsibility towards should we be doing that or whatever. I personally think this movie makes the choices and contextualizes the violence in a way that I do feel comfortable. But, like, I, I do think it's not that we don't have any kind of 
ethical uh, yeah no and it makes me think about to, you know cliff booth's character just getting away with murder and yeah, being yeah. able to be a stuntman and do mm. what he wants to do and it's that to me like i hadn't thought i mean like i just thought it was kind of a bad choice watching it but then i think well maybe it's a commentary on the fact that he is able to do that and it mm. continues to happen in hollywood the, the greatest irony to me on this issue is that if rowan polanski gets imprisoned as one of the finest directors able to show a claustrophobic, disturbing environment, give him a film camera in jail. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> everybody, no, 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 everybody, no, 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 everybody wins. We can't. We can't. I'm not, no, I'm not going to. I'm, I'm, I'm against the prison system in general. So it's like I'm, my solution is not everyone go to prison or whatever. But yeah. like, uh, at any rate. Um, oh, this was a great conversation, guys. Uh, yeah, well, so so glad it. we were able to all get together and and, and yeah. go and and this is a film where I feel that if you that if we had if we had a couple of uh, some other people we get other interesting yes. in, oh, in sure. perspectives tangents colors and feelings this on is this. this is not my favorite of the movie of the year I still prefer uh, In Fabric by Peter Strickland but like this is the only movie that has come out this year that I think could merit this kind of conversation yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so far and I know that like I know that number one I was sure I was going to see the movie again mm-hmm. in a theater where we're in Chicago are very lucky yes. that the mm-hmm. music box has one of I believe one of only like five, five theaters yeah. in the United States which has a 70 millimeter presentation so if if you guys are listening in and in the Chicago land area. Have we all seen the 70 millimeter print? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. Gorgeous. So it, not yeah. everyone is that lucky, but if you are that lucky, take <laughs> advantage of it. Oh, and and oh oh, just one really quick uh, aside is that the not just the visuals, but the sound design is exquisite in this. Whoever did the foley work, whether it's just the the haunted creakings of the span the spawn ranch, like just the random uh, camera movements in the when the rehearsal scenes, or even the hideous slurping of the cylinder of dog food that slowly <laughs> slides out of its container. Yep. Just they did an amazing job on the on the sound on the sound as well. But I can definitely say that like I'm going to get a much more richer viewing of the film from what we brought up in our conversations uh, in this podcast yeah. episode yes, in mind. Absolutely. absolutely. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, so thanks, guys, for listening. And uh, you can catch a Director's Club in multiple places uh, across the internet. We are on Spotify and iTunes at Director's Club of Podcast. You can, uh, we are on Twitter at DC Podcast. Facebook at Directors Club Podcast. We are in the midst of setting up a YouTube channel for Directors Club Podcast, where we're starting with the works of Orson Welles. Uh, if you have an opinion upon <laughs> uh, Once Upon a time, a time in Hollywood, spoiler alert, you most likely do. Yeah, who could have an opinion <laughs> about this movie? <laughs> right. You, and want to uh, let us know about it, you can feel free to send us an email at Directors Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our episodes uh, can be fo- both uh, me and Brad's and Patrick's and uh, Jim's can be all be found on our website, directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and hope to catch you on another episode of the Directors Club. Goodbye. All right. Woo. That was Woo. fun. Smelling sweet Move up the road To the outside of town And the sound of that good gospel
tree.